you like growing up tonight by Vancouver? Very interesting to a youngster who passed You knew something exciting was going to happen within a short time, but you didn't know what it went. I really seriously doubt during those years that a 30-day period would not buy that something exciting didn't occur, either an escape or a, uh, an attempted escape or uh, uh, fights or uh, other problems that had to be tended to. It was a very, very interesting and probably nervous uh, type thing. I, I don't recall being overly frightened. When a guard would stop and talk to you, you used to stand back and you would yell so people could hear what you were saying to that guard as they walked by or, or within the vicinity. But he knew what a convict was going to do before they thought of it themselves. He'd just been around that long and uh, he was tough. They'd find uh, Sparky in about every conceivable place you could imagine, which we would, of course, dump. Wait until everybody was locked up, and he would open his door, run down to cell one, and get a bugler can full of Sparky and take it back to his cells. She had a kind of a hypnotic power. There were a great many wild cats around the penitentiary, and most people couldn't get near them. But she would stand in the doorway of the cell house and say, Kitty, 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 and those cats would go to her. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a very special episode of Stool Pigeon Saturday. Today I have two special guests. They are the relatives, the widow and the son of Jerry Clapp, who was the son of Warden Lou Clapp. And he has a memoir coming out Friday, May 21st. Mark your calendars, come out to the old pen, and check out this book. It's a it's fascinating look at what life at the penitentiary was like and what life as the son of a warden at the penitentiary was like. So welcome, Betty Jo. Welcome, Rocky. Thank you for being here. Thank you for asking us. Thank you. Yeah. So, Jerry, can you tell me what was Jerry like? Like, can you just give me an idea of what he was like as a person? He was, (laughs) he was fun to be with. He had a great sense of humor. He had a little bit of a mischievous line in his DNA Um, but he was he um, when he would talk to people he had a way of just captivating them Mm -hmm. and so when he would tell his stories about growing up at the prison he just had a way of captivating his audiences I don't know what else to say he was very honest he had a very he had a very definite feeling of right and wrong and that probably stemmed from growing up at the prison I don't know. Do you want to add? He was. I would, you know, as my father, he was just a good counselor, and so you always think about those times when you had conversations when you were growing up, and he was always very capable of giving me good advice. I remember one time I had written a paper about my granddad, mm-hmm. a poetry, a poem, in uh, high school, and he helped me with it, and. There were words like firm but fair was always kind of the descriptors of my mm-hmm. granddad. And that was pretty much the way my dad was, too. Mm-hmm. He would not be a strong disciplinarian, but he would be somebody who, if I acted out, would make it known that it was not a 
acceptable. And um, I didn't want to disappoint my dad, mm-hmm. you know, so it mattered a lot to me what he thought. Uh, so it was that kind of a relationship for me. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you, one of his pieces of advice that I give my kids today, and it's mm-hmm. so simple, which is, you know, as you're going through high school and college, he would always just say, have a good plan. And so that's the same advice that I've given my two girls. You know, just always have a good plan and be working toward it. So that was my dad. Another thing I can tell you about Jerry, that he was was really ready to help people, friends especially, Mm -hmm. that needed help. He was always ready to to lend a helping hand or to help them in, in any way that he could. So we saw that quite a bit, didn't yeah. we? Yeah. And he loved uh, the land, as he would call it. Uh, so dad was clerk of the federal court. But then growing up, we left almost every weekend to Cascade because he had partnered with Frank Callender, who was the local banker there, to develop about 300 acres of land around the lake. So I was a little resentful of that because I didn't get to play with my friends on weekends in Boise. And we were always going up there mm-hmm. to, um, he, he was trying to make extra money and develop that ground. So dad was always working, you know, Monday through Friday as clerk and then weekends trying to sell ground up in Cascade. But the blessing was that I got to spend uh, a lot of time around that lake as a young boy with my BB gun hunting and um, I had a dog we had an old basset hound named Moonshine and so Moonshine and I would often just take off for the day Mm -hmm. and that's when you could kind of do that uh, safely and you know put pennies on the railroad tracks and pick them up later when they were smashed those sort of memories were great and you know so it wasn't uh, that bad at all. Actually, it was quite great growing up that way. I might add to Rocky's story. Actually, Lou and Frank Callender went back to Stib Night Days. Mm-hmm. They were friends in the Stib Night Days. And then Frank became you know, a, a banker, and, and Lou went on with his law enforcement type, you know, career. And so after Lou was after Secretary of State, then Lou went into kind of a partnership with Frank Callender on this land. Frank was busy, you know, as a banker, so Lou would be the one that would, did a lot of promoting and showing of the land. And Lou also owned, as time would go on, he would pick up lots here and there for himself. And so when Lou died, then Jerry took over Lou's position in that business. Okay. I mean, kind of going back to the very first thing you said about his mischievousness, I think he documents that really well in this <laughs> yeah, book. It's, yeah, it's so funny. You know, the going into the the warden's office to see your father, sitting next to other prisoners who also have to see your father, and like, <laughs> I think it became a mental challenge with Jerry sitting yeah. on the bench, because he knew that he could never lie to his father, mm-hmm. but yet he didn't want to totally reveal everything that he had done because maybe his father didn't know about it. So it was kind of a mental challenge, and by the time he would get into Lou's office, and Lou would say, is there anything you want to tell me? Jerry would just spill it all out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's great. Yeah, Mm. yeah, the firm but fair, like, Mm. that's something we hear in oral histories about Lou. What do you think of Clapp as a warden? 
Well, like I said, he, he ruled this place with an iron fist, and uh, I think that if Virgil Carey was the epitome of uh, firmness and fairness, uh, Clapp come in a real good second. I know a lot of people disagreed with his policies and things like that, but you didn't have no burning, you didn't have no riots, you had some attempts at it and everything. But I, prior to him and through his administration, you had none. It was the wardens that came along after that, I think, relinquished that firmness and fairness rule. And they become more fairness-minded than firmness. And uh, consequently, you know, the cons picked up on that, you know, and, and began their destructions. I think they had, what, two riots out here after Clapp in which oh, hundreds of thousands of dollars of destruction was done in those two riots. Exactly. He was a man of his word. You know, he was honest, and that's why he served here mm-hmm. for 21 years. Like, that's unheard of at this, this institution. Mm-hmm. And for such a position that was mostly kind of a political thing, for him to go from, you know, Democratic governor to a Republican governor, back and forth, all these different times. It's just a testament to him as a, as a warden. Did Jerry ever talk about Lou? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Your comments made me think of just a short uh, story that my dad told me with the politics of granddad being involved with both Republican and Democratic governors. But there was one particular governor that um, he had met at an elevator and didn't like this governor and refused to get on the elevator with him, even though he worked at the behest of the governor. (laughs) So, you know, my granddad, I think, had that principle that, you know, black and white as to how he saw the things with people. And um, he was willing to put his career at risk over something that, you know, something as simple as that. And Jerry, he kind of helped out with different political things in his early career is that right well yeah he was supporting very much supporting his father and he would when when lewis campaigning for secretary of state for that second for that term uh jerry did as much as he could and yet maintain the job that he had already you know so he was very involved in in that as much as he could be and then i think that he actually contributes getting the job in the first place as clerk of the federal courts to the assistance of Frank Church. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, he was very... And then one of his first judges that he worked with was Frank Church's father-in-law, Chase Clark. Clark, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, oh. yeah, he was he was very much to that degree. Mm-hmm. I remember my dad telling me that the election where he ran for Secretary of State because he had filled the position, he had lost by 80 votes. And that was such a hard, tough loss, loss yeah. for, for, for Dad. I'm sure it was for Grandpa, too. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know if that's accurate, but it, that's what was shared. And um, so it, it always, I think, you know, it was a tough memory for the family a little bit to have lost that election so closely. I can only imagine that your second job out of, you know, being here for 21 years and you're only there for, what, two years, like two and a half years? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. That, yeah, that would be a total yeah. disappointment. 
yeah, I, I, I'm sure Grandpa was looking forward to less stress <laughs> than running the prison. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it is, I think they went on that vacation to Hawaii shortly oh. after he left the prison and passed away. So it was one of those work really hard all your life and then don't get to enjoy quite oh. too much of it later. So yeah, yeah. it was tough there. Now, you kind of alluded to Jerry working for the federal court system. Uh, what what did he do? Kind of clerking? Is that He was clerk at the federal courts, and he worked for him for 30 years. Wow. And he started out as a deputy clerk and worked his way up to clerk. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what his daily tasks were, I guess? Can he as explain? clerk? Yeah. Administrating. Okay. Administrating the, the office and whatever they did. He, he was also, at one point... They appointed him clerk of the federal courts as well as the federal bankruptcy court. So at one period of time, for about, what, two or three years, mm-hmm. three years, he had both both things that he was doing. And it would be like working for the judges. He worked for the judges and made sure their trials and whatever went fine and mm-hmm. made sure the offices were running, you know, as properly. And he worked a lot with the FBI and with the marshals. And um, Yeah, so he, I don't know the exact number, but he probably had... 20 to 30 staff and they all work toward whatever civil or criminal filings that were filed there with the office to set hearings and just administer the whole system for Idaho. He would always kind of kid and say, I clerk for the great and sovereign district of Idaho. He didn't call it Idaho, the clerk of Idaho. He would say the great and sovereign district. He was very proud of his position and just being from Idaho. Right. Um, And he He, would always kind of make fun of all the... Yeah. One year he was president at the Federal Court Clerks Association. And he would always say that he was from Idaho and then go through that. You know, he would always say it. Right, right. So he was really proud of that. That was a fun thing for him. Prior to that, he administered sodium pentothal, what we call like true serum. Did he ever talk about that? Or yeah, he did. Yeah. As a matter of fact, he worked, and I'm sorry, Rocky's going to have to pick up where I'm <laughs> going blank, but uh, he worked for a... Shadel. Shadel, which was, it was a drug, alcohol drug rehabilitation facility mm-hmm. down out of Wendell, Idaho. And so, yeah, he worked for them. I don't know how long he worked for them, and I'm not sure the sequence. It was before he became federal court, but I'm not sure exactly the sequence of events of that. Yeah, and just generally the the stories that I remember were that they would administer that drug, and the people who were receiving it were, you know, going to tell the truth once the drug was administered to them. That's what they believed anyway. Um, And it was probably to help them, if they could find out something that they were subconsciously withholding, mm -hmm. maybe it would help them in their treatment or their, you know, for them. But Dad was quite young at the time, Mm -hmm. and so he had a lot of responsibility running that facility Mm -hmm. at a time when I think he was just getting started, really, Mm -hmm. with his family and everything, Mm -hmm. so... But that was Jerry. Whether he really knew what he was doing or not, you always thought he gave the air that he knew exactly what he was doing and this is the way it went. So when you said he was really young, that's what I thought. I don't know if he had any idea how to run something like that, but boy, 
he probably thought he did, yeah. you know, because yeah. that was just the personality he had. <laughs> That's interesting, like that self-confidence. Yeah, self exactly. Acceptance, exactly. I guess. Mm -hmm. and, wow, interesting. Do you think he got it from being here? Was that just something he was just born that way? And I think it was probably a combination of the, of the influence of his father mm -hmm. and watching his father and maybe some of the other people he met growing up. But I, I would give a lot of it was, part of it was probably his personality. But my guess is part of it would be a reflection of, of watching his father deal with things throughout the years. Jerry was very, very respectful and admired his father and close to his father. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that whatever influence Lou had played a lot of importance in the development of Jerry as a person. Yeah. Lou was a big part of the Masonic Lodges and like uh, the El Cora Shrine. And uh, I think probably before he was a Mason and he had the highest degree in Masonry here in Idaho. I think it was a 33rd degree Mason hmm. that Lou was. And, and he didn't have, I don't think more than an eighth grade education. He got it all made by, I mean, from reading. And one time, when Luke Clapp was a warden up at the prison, some lady downtown wanted him to pray over the, in the funeral, the sermon in the funeral, and he did. He went down there and he made a real, right off his head, mm -hmm. he preached this sermon over this body in this funeral parlor, hmm. which was something. Did Jerry follow in line, and was he ever part of any fraternal groups or clubs outside of he was part of the Elks Club. Elks Club, yeah. yeah, I remember that. But I don't think he was part of the Shrine, you know, Masonic Lodges. Mm -hmm. Probably because of his family and the size of his family. I think he probably was pretty tied up with that and didn't, you know, do that. But as he became, I don't know when he became involved in the, in the Elks Club, but he... Yeah, it would have been... Yeah. earlier in his life with family, I think, because yeah. I don't remember it growing up. So not as involved in those types of organizations okay. as yeah. Granddad was. And again, I think he, the free time that he had, he was trying to move the land up in Cascade. Yeah. Well, after and, Blue died. Yeah, after yeah. That Grandpa passed. Yeah. And are you his, his only child? or? No, I have... Um, well, by second marriage to Betty Jo, I have seven siblings. <laughs> so uh, my mom was Shirley, and her first name was Shirley, and so dad and her, and her had five children, including me, and then when dad met Betty Jo, I had three siblings added to the whole mix. Yeah. Nice. So right. I am one of... Eight. Eight. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of were the Brady Bunch when the family yeah, was exactly. blended together. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, that's the way we always kind of described ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, man, I, very similar. Yeah. Yeah. Large, large family yeah. blended. Yeah. I might say that in his natural family, he or his birth family, he was fourth in line. But when he came to be, you know, with me, he was the top dog. He was first in line. <laughs> he was the oldest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think I wanted to be top dog. But. <laughs> <laughs> so when I first met you, when you came in today, I just, my first thought was like, wow, this man is very tall. And, you know, does, that just kind of runs in the family. How, how tall were the rest of your family, your dad and grandpa? 
Yeah, Dad was taller than me, I think, by he was, an inch. He was six, six, five. Yeah, six, so five. I'm six, three, or four, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. We would have been the tallest of the family. But my grandma was tall, and I think the height line probably came through her ah. to Dad, because Grandma, uh, for a lady, was quite tall. And then my aunt, so my dad's sister, she was quite tall as well. Over six, she was, I don't know how tall, but she yeah. was over six feet. Yeah, that height was definitely prominent in, in the family. Yeah. Uh, some of us got more of it than others. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. So Jerry mentioned several prisoners that he interacted with regularly. Did he, later in life, did he ever connect with any of them? No. The only I one that so. I he think that he might have connected with was the uh, the young one Chris, Chris, Chris uh, but he when he got when Chris got out of prison, then he moved back to Pennsylvania or someplace like that, and you know, so there was no connection to my Ennel's letters or something. I don't know, yeah. but but Jerry was very fond of him, but I think that's the only one that he would have had any other connection with after the prison. Chris was probably the first of my so-called playmates. Uh, very tragic. He was a second lieutenant in the Army, very intelligent, artistic uh, human being. And that night, here over in Marsing, uh, as a second lieutenant in the Army, way back in the early years, got drunk, started for Boise, and a girl was on a horse that night. And he hit the horse and killed the girl. Didn't stop. I don't you know what the circumstances were beyond that. There was a trial, and of course, they, he was convicted of involuntary manslaughter, which is the least of your, you know, type crimes in that area. He normally serve about 11 months and it was over. But uh, he was our, our first house boy that I can recall, and uh, I understand later he went back east. He was married to the to the daughter of the brother of a state and became president of a rather large telephone company. Yeah, I don't remember any connections to anybody specifically that Dad would talk about after. But growing up, whether in here in Boise or spending so much time up in Cascade, uh, you just always ran into somebody who knew my granddad. Mm-hmm. So it was always that last name that seemed to trigger a memory for people because, you know, in that area with granddad mm-hmm. being invo- involved in the land and then my dad everybody just seemed to have a memory to tell about him. So even today, not often, but occasionally, even today, somebody will tell a story that, you know, I'd run into. So it always made you think how small Boise was or how small Idaho was for all those years. So it was it was a lot of fun hearing people talk about Granddad that knew mm-hmm. him because uh, he really did. I think a lot like my dad. I mean, he just had a way of creating memories with people and he had a way of endearing himself to a lot of people you know once one quick story about dad was that when he was clerk of the federal courts he was well liked by his staff and uh, most of the staff were women and they all banded together and my dad would take them out to the racetrack and um, they, had a they ladies would all night. wear <laughs> these t-shirts called Jerry's Angels. We would kind of roll our eyes a little bit, but Dad loved it. And, um, you know, I think you kind of tolerated it a little bit, but you were a good sport about it. 
But my dad just had that charisma factor about him that he was well liked by even people that worked for him. So, and he, had, he I mean, he just uh, hammed it up and had a lot of fun with it. So, yeah, he's an amazing storyteller, just even on the page. Are there stories that aren't written in this book that he you you remember like that he's told you and could be it's just like I said to to Rocky it's just one big I would say now was that story in the book or not you know because we were talking about the poker games you know Uh was that in the book or not because we've heard the stories so many times throughout the years especially me because I would go with him sometimes when he would talk to groups of people and tell the stories he was a magnificent storyteller and he had a way of just pulling you right in to the story with him and so I don't know I I can think of two one's a little morbid so I don't know if it's appropriate of course or not yeah it is prison life one's a funny story about the family at the prison where my brother Chris, my older brother Chris, had received for a gift, I think it was Christmas, a model airplane, uh, powered airplane. And so I think my granddad loved toys as much as uh, my older brother did. And they were living at the new house, not the old. Oh, gotcha. And so Grandpa got the plane going and as soon as he got it up in the air and it did a circle, somehow he lost control of it, uh-huh. and the plane came racing back down toward them, and it actually was towards him, toward Grandpa. <laughs> and so Grandpa takes off running and goes barreling, jumping over the hedge, and the tree or the plane goes right into the hedge and destroys the plane. And so um, that was a story that uh, my dad liked to tell. And, <laughs> one of those stories you don't hear about grandpa too much because of <laughs> him being such a kind of a serious person yeah, in law and order I think that's one of the reasons it was not in the book was because it was after Jerry was married and started having children and the main focus was yeah. him growing up at the prison so. yeah, yeah yeah and then the other one had to had to deal with an execution mm. oh yeah and so there weren't many, but there were a couple that occurred during the time that Grandpa was there. And Dad would explain that the person who would pull the lever, the trap door, would come in from out of state. Nobody knew the hangman. who it was. Yeah. Um, and it was intentional that nobody knew who that person was. But that after the hanging had occurred, the coroner would go down below and would uh, listen to the heartbeat. And to confirm that you know the life had been had been taken, and so uh, the coroner uh, would have to stand up on a little ladder and put the stethoscope on the chest. The stethoscope was cold, and the body's reaction to that coldness caused the knees to come up and hit the coroner right in the gut. And the corner fell off the ladder and passed out. <laughs> so so scary. Yeah, those are those. I don't think the corner was the same since then. <laughs> yeah, I did not. Yeah. Wow. But again, just how can you not, you know, remember those kind of stories when right. you hear about them? Mm-hmm. When when Dad would talk, talk to us about them. some of those stories, go. You know, we were 
as a family sitting around the dining room table, those were the stories that often got told at dinner. And so it was always kind of fun, uh, entertaining dinner conversations. <laughs> Once we moved to Cascade and he started telling his stories to people in the community, they would ask him, different organizations and everything would ask him. Then he decided that he needed to maybe write down his stories. Well, he took a writing class, an evening writing class in McCall one year. And so he started writing his stories from that reading, from that writing class. Then he incorporated some of the, he would write, and then as he got a little bit older and, and things changed, then he would dictate the stories to, to his oldest granddaughter or some of the ladies that worked for him at the courts. He would dictate the stories to them and then they would write them down or type them on the computer. So he involved quite a few people in the whole process of getting this. And then he one day he said, I think I need to take all of this and put it in a book. Yeah. And then, he, you know, then it became, I don't know, his health declined mm -hmm. and other things were happening. And so it wasn't until after he passed away that we decided maybe we should take those stories and put them in a book like he always wanted. So that's what we did. In 2021, the Idaho State Historical Society is celebrating 140 years of service to Idahoans as the trusted source in protecting Idaho's historical places and artifacts and sharing its stories. As a part of the commemoration, the old Idaho Penitentiary is committed to bringing you 140 unique stories about the people who worked, lived, and served time at the site through this podcast and the events and programs scheduled throughout the year. The Capturing 140 Storytelling Program offers a unique glimpse at lives filled with hope and despair and the enduring triumphs and tragedies at Idaho's only penitentiary from 1872 to 1973. Stay tuned. Old Lou Clapp was warden. I ran off with his car. March the 15th, 1952. I got away from one cop here in Boise. And I had the whites on, I had the warden's hat on. And Lou Clapp was 6'4", weighed about 180. Oh, two, he weighed more than that. He's a big guy. But I kind of liked the old bastard. I got drunk and he was gone. And I went in his house and I drank his whiskey. And I knew I had to run off. So I had put his hat on for disguise because his house right here in the tower guard right there, the car parked right there. Well, I had to get under that tower to leave. So I put his hat on disguise. That's a damn drunk with curly. And I got away. But I had to go down Warren Freeze Avenue and cop started the young guy. So I was pretty young then. He started chasing me. And didn't he come up? Where are you going? Such a hurry. I said, I'm going to sleep in the hospital to see my hand. Drunken hands. Well, you better go to the police station. I'll follow you. The damn fool, I started for the police station and the light was amber. So he was, I went through the amber light and he stopped for the light. Hell, I took off. And now he took out, he was finally, I was two or three blocks ahead of him. I almost hit it on my hand, went across the street with a cane and I damn near hit him. But I got away from the cop and I got way up on the hill road. And I don't know why she's very good then. And I had a bottle of Forster. Fifth, a little diamond cart, whiskey bottle. So I took off and I was going to try to get over Nampa. I come down there with a roadblock. Hell, I just pushed up there and threw a board to the son of a bitch. And it threw me off in the ditch. I hit a cow. And all that did was bump my head. And I tipped that bottle up. I'm in a hole. I'm just been in the beat hell. I couldn't get out. I knew I was caught. So I'm going to drink what I had left. 
How did you hook up with Hidden Shelf Publishing? I am a quilter, and so I would go to Granny's Attic in McCall, which is a quilt store, and there would always be this, there'd be a book sitting on the counter there that was from Hidden. And so I would say to Lori, who was the owner, I'd say, who is this and why do you have this book there? And she'd say, well, the publisher is my, my uncle, and he's just moving to, even though I think the publishing company is back east, he's moving to McCall. And so from there, so I just kept, kept that in the back of my mind. And then when we started really seriously talking about publishing it, he popped into my mind. So I started talking to him, to Bob, and then I would took the stories over and showed it to him and said, what do you think? He says, I think we have something here. And that it just evolved from there. Yeah, I so. think soon after that, he came down here and he's like, hey, can, can you give me a tour of the prison? You know, I've got a project that it's just, just starting, mm-hmm. but I'd love to get a scope of, you know, is this possible? And yeah, and then started mm-hmm. trading some research back and forth with them and yeah. That's oh man. So that's how it happened. It just it just happened. Yeah. You know, sometimes in life you have things that just happen. Yeah. And that was one of them. And it's so funny that quilt shop, mm-hmm. uh, Lori's daughter happens to be one of my best I know. friends, yeah, Jesse. Jesse and uh-huh. yeah, so it was just it just happened. So happenstance. <laughs> yeah. It just seems so funny yeah. that this all these connections it was were meant right to be. There. It was meant to be. Yeah. It really was. I'll tell you Long another story. strange thing too. Oh, you know, yeah. Jerry in the book talks about Going to the prison farms, uh-huh. especially out there at, at Eagle, Eagle Island. Uh-huh. Well, guess who lives there now? <laughs> he lives in the Two Rivers subdivision, which is on Eagle Island, where the old prison oh farm used to be. Gosh. So that's a coincidence too. I'm curious. Did you or your siblings? Did you ever? Did you follow any lines of you know corrections or law enforcement? My older sister did not. My older brothers did not. Um, I did. I started out after graduating from Moscow University of Idaho. I graduated in 89 and was able to get a job as a probation officer down in Lewiston. So I worked with the judges there who many, you know, um, have still remained friends. And it was a, that was a two-year time there in Lewiston. And then I ended up as a probation officer in Boise County and worked again for a magistrate judge. And then after uh, Boise County, about five years, I started working for the state of Idaho as their probation officer academy trainer, coordinator, and detention officer academy coordinator. And I inspected juvenile correction facilities throughout the state. So um, very much so in in the same similar areas to what uh, grandpa and, and uh, my dad did yeah so and then mckinsey 
Right. My daughter is a probation officer for Ada County. Wow. So. so Okay. So the yeah. kind of lineage is mm-hmm. still kind of there? Mm-hmm. For sure. Oh, and wow. my wife's an attorney and my Your daughter's an attorney. Your other daughter's an attorney. Yeah. yeah. So we all, most of us, <laughs> stay in the same career field. Do you have any stories about being a probation officer? That Well, when I reflect about that, I had such a great experience both as a probation officer in Lewiston, Boise County, the state, all of those jobs, I was given a lot of freedom to do the things that I thought were, you know, interesting and creative for me. I wasn't restricted. And I loved working in small county Idaho uh, because you're kind of the person, if you're the probation officer, there's really, you're it. But I'm really proud of the fact that we did kind of a restorative justice model up there in Idaho City, and we involved victims in mediation with the kids that maybe had done something wrong and had hurt them, and had started that program as a way to really kind of touch on how to hold kids accountable. Because it really isn't as meaningful to have a judge or a probation officer try to hold them as uh, accountable as much as you can hold them accountable if you have a victim involved in talking to them. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a strong message that I really am happy we did. And then working for the state, we didn't have a training, standardized training for probation and detention. But the director at the time had the vision along with the state police academy to bring everybody under the one house training program there. And so we had to write curriculum, we had to come up with standardized training for use of force criteria. And I got to travel all over Idaho, which was a wonderful experience, and meet people from everywhere. That was a campaign to get everybody on one page to come to Meridian to go through that training because they had to buy in to send their detention and probation officers to support it. So it was a financial obligation to lose staff for two weeks to go through training. So that all happened in a period of the time that I was there. And, you know, the first academy graduation we had was a real proud moment for, for everybody that went through that. And then inspecting correctional facilities, I was going all the way up to Coeur d'Alene, over to Salmon, down to Rexburg, Pocatello, Idaho Falls, and through the state. So I was driving and just got to see Idaho through all that time uh, driving and just such a rich experience. I'm so lucky. Talking to your driving, I might add that I don't know if people realize this or not, but the federal courts, we have federal courts in Coeur d'Alene and Moscow, in Boise, and then in Pocatello. Now, there might be some other little ones. You know, I think there's a littler one in Twin Falls, but the big ones are in those areas. So the federal judges and their staffs and some of the part of the clerks associate, or, you know, the federal clerks would have to travel to those locations also. So it's just not a stationary position in Boise. It's yeah. a all-over-the-state process. Circuit court kind of. Yeah, I remember one time Dad took me with him to hold court up in Moscow, 
and he put me in charge of the recording device. Uh, I had no clue what I was doing. <laughs> and I'm looking down at the tape, and it's not running. Oh, and no. Dad is officiating, clerking the hearing. And I had to interrupt and say, Dad, the recorder's not working. I don't know. So we stopped the hearing, and the attorneys you know, had to stop speaking and everything. And um, well, he comes over, and he pushes two buttons, and it goes again. And I was just so stressed out. <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> I didn't want to mess up the only court hearing I had ever done. It, it probably ruined me from ever being clerk <laughs> of the court. But. <laughs> you wrote an essay kind of talking about the economics that Lou had at the prison to make it self-sustaining. And did you did you compare like the current Department of Corrections at that time? And well, I I did. I think most of the paper was focused on just what I believed was an operation that worked without a lot of state funding. And in my mind, having been in corrections and involved myself with um, how much it costs to send a juvenile to detention per day and just generally what I knew about expenses with correctional facilities and how impressed I felt I felt my I was for my granddad and it may have been just because of the times you know yeah. it, it changed over the times but because they were growing their own food and canning their own food and donating canned food to the needy and they had their own turkey chicken shop and uh, mechanical shops, all the things that I think my grandpa thought was important for their rehabilitation and to keep them less idle was I was researching the presentations my granddad did to the state legislature for funding. And I found it just very interesting what his budget requests were for. But he was asking for small things like a metal detector, you know, um, and a little bit of a full circle moment. I had an opportunity to interview for a position with Governor Andrus's liaison position with the Department of Corrections, and it ended up that they decided not to fill that position, so nobody ever filled it. But he asked me, um, the, the attorney that was helping fill the position for the governor, to go out to the warden of the current correctional facility and let him interview me because I would obviously be working with him. And so I, I sent my paper to him before I thought it, just to give him some insight into who I was. Yeah. So we had a discussion about it with, with a warden at the time back in the 90s of, about my granddad. So that was a great kind of conversation to have with him and I enjoyed it a lot. But yeah, uh, it was a college paper. My dad had always made a point of telling me how they really did a lot to just take care of themselves. If there was some study of it, there probably would be a result that would indicate, you know, less cost per inmate to, for the time, mm -hmm. you know, than it would be today in terms of just dollar value. I, I believe that. That prison, when Luke Lapp was warden, supported itself. They didn't need no damn money from the legislature because Lou Clapp ran that prison. They had the Eagle Island farm. They had the farm out where the golf course is on uh, Warm Springs Avenue there. That was uh, the old Mosley farm, I believe they called that. 
they had all of their truck garden down there. They raised enough tomatoes and, and vegetables and carrots and peas and beans. And they had the cannery there. They run the cannery. That prison was self-supporting. Never cost taxpayers any money back in them days. Now, well, there ain't no telling how many millions of dollars their budget is. Millions, I know that. Be a fact. Because of all of the modern day changes they've got and everything, you know. So I guess you would gather by that that I kind of lean toward the old time way of running a prison rather than the modern. <laughs> Anthony, thank you for writing the foreword to the oh, book. Yeah. I really appreciated your comments and your historical oh, context. I uh, have really looked up to Lou in, the, in a weird way, just, just studying the prison and the amount of strain and stress of a job like that, the fact that he was just so dedicated to it a quarter of his life, it's, it's kind of a profound thing to do. And then to read Jerry's, you know, his perspective is this little boy at a prison. It just really brought this place to life, which is, you know, as I was saying, you know, that's what we try to do is like really humanize prison. And most people that we speak to, they have some connection to to prison, either a, a loved one being incarcerated or formerly incarcerated, that sort of thing. And I think this gives a good idea of what it was like here. I might tell you that if Jerry's sister were to write a book, oh, yeah. it would be from a totally different perspective because Absolutely. she did not have the freedom that Jerry thought he had. I'm sure he had more supervision with the guards and you know all the way around, uh-huh. but he thought he had a lot of freedom. Yeah. She did not have that. And so Jerry's experience, I think, is unique for the time because Pat was certainly under more supervision and constant somebody watching her than than Jerry. As I was reading the book, and I've heard, of course, the stories, but to read them and the stories back against each other together, it, it triggers thoughts. And one of them was just, I wonder how much tension my granddad might have felt with having dad involved in so much of the prison activities because he was a young man and could have been as is in the one story they told about going up to the prisoner who had been leaving and then coming back with alcohol and the gun in the box and all that stuff how close a call that was and how granddad may have at times really been thinking he was exposing dad to too much and these are what this is what i was trying to think about how granddad would have processed all of those experiences because on the other hand i would i would i'm thinking that he's trying to raise a young man who's somewhat rebellious and somewhat (laughs) in trouble yeah especially up in kellogg before he came down here i think yeah my dad was i think it was consistently on the edge of getting in a lot of trouble (laughs) But um, just how I think he thought this experience would be good for him and becoming a young man. But that how, uh, how dangerous at times it really could have been, too. And then just adding in that resources were limited. It wasn't, I mean, they were calling in the state police and yeah. the county sheriff and the city police. Anything time, things got out of hand. They didn't have enough resources just to deal with it with the guards and my dad was i guess another guard he needed in some ways yeah 
I think it depended on the circumstances too, though, because Jerry was limited, like on the riots, he he was limited to where he could be, you know, and the the story where the bloodhound, where the prisoner was caught, if you read the story, Jerry was left behind. While everybody else went with the dog and everybody else went out looking for the prisoner, and no one probably realized the prisoner was right there all the way, all along, you know, did not leave, yeah. Yeah. you know. So, I want to ask you a question, I guess. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Because I think there was a consequence to growing up here for dad with just maybe having bad dreams and, you know, can you talk yes, about I can. that? Because he yes, I he can. wrestled with some he of did, it. He did, yeah. yeah. I can remember one night, <laughs> one night being sound asleep and all of a sudden having a hand come up, bang, you know, it didn't, it hit me, but it wasn't full force, you know, yeah. but it hit me and startling me. And so I woke up and I said, why did you do that? And he said, I was having a bad dream about the prison. So, yeah, it did bother him. Yeah. Yeah. So he was having a bad dream, and he decided to swing in his dream, and right. I just happened to be in the way of the swing. <laughs> oh, but he didn't hurt me or anything. But it, yeah. but then that made me aware that it did affect him in more ways mm-hmm. than what yeah. we realize, you know. Yeah. Do you think there were some stories that he never told anybody that no experiences here? <laughs> no, he was he was pretty open focused. He was like yeah. about it. Yeah. yeah, I never sensed he was keeping no. anything back. But there are a lot of stories where he was on the verge of, or who knows what you dream and why you dream right. it, you know. But there were some incidences where I could see where he would be trying to protect himself or think that he yeah. needed to be in a dream. Mm-hmm. And this and kind of the stress of, I think there'd have to be some residual stress from just oh. growing up here and having yeah. prisoners escape and, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, starting with the very first night that he was here, you know. <laughs> right. What a change in life yeah. that was. For a 10-year-old boy, you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. How so. do you, how accurate, like from his storytelling, do you think that the book captures it or is it like you had to have heard it straight from him to like really capture it? I think the book captures it, but it doesn't, but you, but there's a difference between reading it and watching him tell it oh yeah. you know uh, the book pulls you in Mm -hmm. but watching it's like watching a good storyteller you know and he was excellent at it he really was he could recite the poem of sam mcgee from beginning to end (laughs) with his flair about it yeah yeah (laughs) yeah made you feel like you were shivering and cold listening to him (laughs) tell that poem that's great that's great (laughs) but yeah he was just as we've talked about very good at storytelling and he would blend that into other things about the sheep eater indians oh. and cascade and he loved to take people out to massacre rock he would go and show them property and if he liked them or maybe if he thought they were a potential sell <laughs> he would take them over to massacre rock and tell them the story of massacre rock and of course you could see the valley and you he you know and he would point out that the lake wasn't there but the uh-huh farmers were ranchers were coming up the edge of the the valley and you know you, so he would give it so that you had a very definite image of what was happening and he loved to do that with yeah, yeah I, I can remember we'd be in the truck and we'd be you know all dirt roads around where the development was at and toward the end of the showing of the land i said dad are we going to massacre rock and he says i think we'll take him to massacre rock 
I've heard it so many times, <laughs> but every time he told it, I just was so excited yeah. to hear it again. Yeah. Could you recount it for us? <laughs> well, um, so above the Cascade Dam, uh, there's a large formation of rocks where there was a massacre. On a hillside. Mm-hmm. Uh, of three soldiers, Union Army soldiers, by the Sheep Eater Indians. And there had been conflicts uh, occurring between the sheep eaters and the farmers and ranchers and things being alleged to have been stolen by the Indians and whatnot. So they sent this small group in to kind of see if they could calm the peace. Well, the Indians laid in wait at this location just above the dam and uh, took the life of two of the three. Yeah, they ambushed them. One survived to carve in the names of those that were killed, and then also carved in his shape of a hand with the index finger pointing and the thumb up as a direction as to where the bodies were buried 100 feet away. And for years, I don't know if you can see it now, or maybe you'd have to just go just at the right lighting, but you could see that for years and years and years, the carving in the rock. Yeah. Yeah, and then there was also a carving on a tree too. Yeah, yeah, not sure. I don't remember, but I eventually, a historical society or some group put a plaque on the rock so you can go read the story. But you're not wow. going to find it. It's not. There's yeah. not a sign, oh. at least not today that I'm aware of. But it is off that little Vista Point Road. Again, going back to moonshine and uh-huh. the BB gun, I that, I'd wander off over there and go put my hand in the hand carved on the rock and I would kind of try to walk off 100 feet where I thought those they were buried buried. and I had a metal detector and would would try to find anything that I could find so yeah that was the general story of it and um, again my dad had done the research on it had figured out kind of historically what he thought was accurate and would tell the story and he was a very he was, he was, he loved Indians. I mean, he, he was fascinated with the sheep eater Indians. Yeah. And that's why in the book I wrote about the sheep eater Indians, just mentioned it in the, and Massacre Rock, because that was just part of him, yeah. you know. Yeah. And he, he, he was very, he did a lot of research and a lot of reading on the sheep eater Indians. Mm-hmm. And, wow. But you've got to remember yeah. when this happened, it was before the dam. I don't know if it was before the railroad tracks or not, but it was before the dam. Yeah. So all of that area that the dam flooded was farmland uh-huh. and ranches. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's interesting to think back because, as I recall Dad telling me, when they would go to Cascade, there was not the nice highway that there is today. It was a, there was a dirt road on the other side of the river, and it would take two days to get to Cascade. And so back they, in those days. Back in those days, yeah. So I don't know if we're talking 40s or what, but the dam was built, I think, in the 50s. They would have to stay overnight somewhere on the way, maybe sleeping in their car. And I remember one time Dad and Grandpa were headed up, and accidentally they had ran into a pig. Oh, no. And Dad and Grandpa got out of the car to try and find the owner because they had killed it and couldn't find the owner went and did find a 
house nearby, but nobody was there. And Dad said, um, we hung the pig up from a tree and we cleaned it because we knew how valuable that meat was yeah. and we didn't want the owner to lose his meat. So I can just imagine, you know, as a young kid, what that would have experience would have been like uh, for Dad. And certainly, again, talking about how Dad developed his own morals in life, those little lessons from way back when he was a kid with Grandpa about how you yeah. do something like that would have been mm-hmm. important and informative. So. Yeah. Thank you so much. I feel like you've really uh, extended what Jerry's life was like after the prison and really kind of revealed his character really well. So thank you. You're welcome. We want to thank you for helping us promote Jerry's book. It was just a way of us honoring him. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. All right, everybody. Like like we said at the beginning, The Warden's Son by Jerry Clapp will be coming out May 21st. There will be an event here held at the Old Pen from 6 to 8 p.m. that evening, and you can pick up your own copy of the book. Uh, We will have it available in our gift shop after that as well. So definitely come in, pick this book up. It's a a great read. It's a pretty quick read. There are a bunch of great chapters or little, little vignettes, little stories. And Jerry, I mean, he's a great storyteller, as we've told throughout this whole podcast. So... Betty Joe, Rocky, thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, everybody, thanks for listening. Do your own time, do your own number, and we'll see you next week. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And new this season, we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod. There was always a I did my, my wandering, but I had to go to the turnkey and he would near the tower cars. Even when I was on the outside perimeter of the prison, the tower guards were alerted that the warden's son was going up to the barn or he was going up to the slaughterhouse or he was going here or going there, or even back on the hillside. He was already go back there. I'd always have to report to the turnkey. He 